Welcome back to the podcast, talking about chapter 11 of Hail and Farewell, which we did in one go, because, well, mostly because it was a short chapter. Tekrific says, Ander, those were not the lines I think Lady Gregory helped write. They would have been the ones written in dialect. I just liked the lines I quoted and hoped they would spark an interest to read the poem. Ah, okay, my bad. Um, well, there you go. Well, thanks for attempting to spark our interest. What a pompous ass! says Tegrific. I need a palate cleanser after this book. I think I'll go read something good. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit of a pompous ass, this George Moore fellow. I like the ass designation, whether intentional or not. George Edwards Yeats and Lady Gregory were all Irish landed gentry whose money was derived from tenants' rents. And servants did all the work, says Swim, said the Mama Fishy. So George is an ass with dollar signs. Yeats can lie on his fainting couch with Lady Gregory fussing over his genius, while Edward is in his expensive gothic pile writing plays, going to mass and hating women as a result, I'm sure, of his domineering mother. And none of them know that their parasitic way of life derived from others' labours will soon end. Bwahahaha. A very sobering fact, says Tekrific. Not their deaths, but the upcoming change to Ireland and England would mean a greatly diminished landed gentry. Fixed it to way of life. Uh, we have heard way too much of Yeats's The Shadowy Waters. The synopsis, an old love story, the ancient sea god Forgale embarks on a journey. He communicates with souls appearing to him in the guise of birds who promise him love should he follow them. His crew, believing him to be mad, capture a ship upon which they find a queen and eventually leave Fogale and the woman alone to follow the birds. It was first performed January 14th, 1904. Kind of cool plot. I like that. Um, one of those old school kind of stories. I dig it. Um, But we have heard far too much about it. I do agree. Chapter 12. Um, Now, not the longest chapter, but I'm still going to do it in two halves, so we're going to do a bit of a shorter reading. A room had been hired at the Shelburne Hotel, and mornings were spent writing The Bending of the Bow. Uh, It could be finished in the next three weeks if I fortuned upon somebody who could explain the various, various sections and parties in Irish politics, all striving for mastery at that time. Somebody acquainted enough with the country to unravel the Lord Castletown incident and expound the Healy problem the O'Brien problem, the Redmond problem, and the great many other political problems with which the play is best set. There is little use in writing when there is no clear vision in the mind. The pen stops of its own accord, and I often rose from my chair and walked about the room, my feet at last finding their way through the hotel and down the street as far as the Kildare Street Club to ask Edward if he would tell me. He would tell me nothing. His present to the Irish Literary Theatre was his play, and I was free to alter it as I pleased, putting the last act first and the first act last, but he would not help me to alter it, and it was impossible not to feel that it was reasonable for him to refuse. What do you think of the title, The Bending of the Bow? The Tale of a Town is a better title, and after some heated words, we left the club one evening together. You must sign the play, he said, turning suddenly. 
I signed the play, I answered, all my literary vanity ablaze. No, but I'll put adapted from. I'll have no adaptations. I'll have nothing to do with your reversion. And he wrenched himself free from me, leaving me to go my way, thinking that here was nothing for it but to sign a work that was not mine. I too am sacrificing to Kathleen Nihulahan. One sacrifice brings many. And to escape from the hag whom I could see wrapped in a faded shawl, her legs in grey worsted stockings, her feet in brugues, I packed my trunk and went away by the mailboat, laughing at myself, and at the same time, not quite sure that she was not still at my heels. Kathleen follows her sons across the seas, and she did not seem to be very far away in the morning in Victoria Street, while Edward's play was before me. After writing some lines of vituperation, quite in the Irish style, I would lay down the pen and cry, Kathleen, art thou satisfied with me? And it seemed an exquisite joke to voice Ireland's woes, until one day I stopped in Ebury Street, abashed, for it was not a victory for our soldiers that I desired to read in the paper, just bought from the boy who had rushed past me, yelling news from the front but one of the Boers. The war was forgotten, and I walked on slowly, frightened, lest this sudden and inexplicable movement of the soul should be something more than a merely accidental mental vacillation. It may be no more, and it may be that I am changing, I whispered under my breath, and then, charging myself with faint-heartedness and superstition, I walked on, trying to believe that I should be myself again next morning. It was a bad sign to lie awake all night, thinking of what happened in Ebury Street the evening before, and after asking if I really did desire that the Boers should win the fight and keep their country, and it was worse sign to read without interest headlines announcing a forward movement of our troops on turning over the pages, a rumour, it was given as a rumour, that the Boers were retreating northward caught my eye, the paper was thrown aside, and an hour was spent wondering why the paper had been tossed aside so negligently. Was it because I had become, without knowing it, pro-Boer? That was it for next morning on reading that 500 of our troops had been taken prisoners, I was swept away by a great joy, and it was a long time before I could recover sufficient calm of mind to ask myself the reason of all this sympathy for illiterate farmers, speaking a Dutch dialect in which no book had yet been written. A people without any sentiment of art, without a past, without folklore, and therefore, in some respect, a less reputable people than the Irish, I had seen some finely designed swords in the Dublin Museum forged without doubt in the last Bronze Age, and Kofi had shown me the splendid bits that the ancient Irish put into their horses' jaws. There was the monkish book of Kells, a beautiful thing in a way. The cross of Kong was made in Roscommon and by an Irish artist. It bears the name of its maker, an Irish name, so there can be no doubt as to its nationality. There are some fine legends, the rudiments of a literature, but that had not been carried into culture, the Irish not being a thinking race, perhaps. After that I must have fallen into a deep lethargy. On awakening I remembered the autumn evening in Edwards Park, when Kathleen Hulhan rose out of the plain that lies at the foot of the Buran Mountains and came foot-sore and weary up through the beech grove to me. I had not the heart to repulse her, so hapless did she seem. Nor did I remember the danger of listening to her till I had stood before Edward telling him the story of the meeting in the park. It is dangerous, I had said to him, 
to listen to Kathleen even for a moment. She has brought no good luck or good health to anyone. The morning paper was picked up from the hearth rug, and the news of the capture of our troops read again and again, the same thrill of joy coming into my heart. The Englishman that was in me, he that wrote Esther Waters, had been overtaken and captured by the Irishman. Strange, for all my life had been lived in England. When I went to Ireland, I always experienced a sense of being a stranger in my own country, and like many other Irishmen, had come to think that I was immune from the disease that overtakes all Irishmen sooner or later. That moment in Edwards Park was enough for me. And ever since, the disease had been multiplying in secret. The incident in Ebury Street was only a symptom. A moment after, I was asking myself in the microbe, if the microbe were sown that evening in Edwards Park, or if the introduction of it could be traced back to the afternoon in Victoria Street, when Edward and Yeats had called to ask me to join in their attempt to give a national literary theatre to Ireland. It might be traced further back still to the evening in the temple when Edward had told me that he would like to write his plays in Irish. And there arose up in me the memory of that midnight when I wandered among the courts and halls, dreaming of Ireland, of the story of wild country life that I might write. It was then that I caught the disease, I said, a sort of spiritual consumption. It was then that the microbe first got into my soul and ate away most of it, without my being aware of its presence or the ravages caused by it, until the greater part of me collapsed in the Edbury Street. And what was still more serious was that, out of the wreck and rubble of my former self, a new self had risen. It could not be that the old self that had worshipped pride, strength, courage and egoism should now crave for justice and righteousness and should pause to consider humility and obedience as virtues and might be moved to advocate chastity tomorrow. Such a thing could not be. A new self had made up within me or had taken possession of me. It is hard to analyse a spiritual transformation. One knows little about oneself. Life is mysterious. Only this can I say for certain, that I learned that then that ideas are as necessary to us as our skins, and like one that had has been flayed, I sat wondering whether new ideas would clothe me again, until a piece of burning coal falling from the grate into the fender awoke me from my reverie. When I had put it back among the live embers, I said, My past life crumbles away like that piece of coal. In a few moments, it will be all gone away, all gone for me, and my new self will then be alone in me, and powerful enough to lead me into a new life. Into what life will it lead me? Into what Christianity I wandered across the room to consult the looking-glass, curious, curious to know if the great spiritual changes that were happening in me were recognisable upon my face, but the mirror does not give back characteristic expression, and to find out whether the expression of my face had changed I should have to consult my portrait painters, Steer, Tonks and Sickert, would be able to tell me, and that night at Steer's, after a passionate protest against the wickedness and the stupidity of the Boer War delivered across the dining table. I got up and walked around the room, feeling myself to be unlike the portraits they had painted of me, every one of which had been done before the war, 
The external appearance no doubt remained, but the acquisition of a moral conscience must have modified it. As I was about to launch my question on the company, I caught sight of the little black eyes that Steer screws up when he looks at anything. All the other features are insignificant. The eyes are all that one notices, and the full sleek outlines of the face. His shoulders slope a little, like mine, and the body is long, and the large feet shuffle down the street in goshes. If the weather be wet, and in the studio in carpet slippers... What? If the weather... Did I read the wrong thing there? And in the studio in carpet slippers, long white hands droop from his cuffs, hands that I remember carrying canvases from one easel to another, Tonks is lank and long in every limb, and one remembers him as a herring-gutted fellow with a high bridge on his nose, and one remembers him much more for the true honest heart that always goes with his appearance. I could see that he sympathised with the Boer women and children dying in concentration camps, and that Steer was thinking of the pictures he had brought home from the country. It was shameful that anyone should be able to think of pictures at such a time, but Steer takes no interest in morals. His world is an external world, and I abandoned myself somewhat cowardly to his pictures till the end of the evening, thinking all the while that Tonks would understand my perplexities better, and that the time to speak to him would be when we walked home together. All right. That's where we're going to end. We'll have their conversation tomorrow night. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.